Would you describe yourself as a person of faith? No matter what you believe, your answer to that question will be yes. Even if you're not religious, your answer is still yes. That's because all people, to some degree, live based off faith. A simple non-religious definition of faith would be believing in something for which there's no absolute proof. But by that definition, everybody lives off of faith. Take, for example, the age-old question, what happens to you after you die? No empirical test can answer that question. No one knows based off any first-hand information or knowledge, regardless of what they claim. Recently, Bill Nye visited the Ark encounter built by Ken Ham, and Ken Ham asked him what would happen to him when he dies. And he replied, when you, when you die, that's it, you're done. It's over. Despite being called the science guy, there's no science in that belief. There's no test to run to prove that. And sure, brain activity stops when the body perishes, but you see, we're not dealing with a physical question, but a metaphysical question. What happens to your spirit, your soul, when you die? Everyone answers that question by a choice. You must choose to believe something. That choice might be backed up based on a religious text, per se, but still a choice must be made. And even the atheist who believes nothing comes next is still basing that choice by faith because he does not know that nothing comes next. As Christians, though, we do believe something happens after you die. That is because we have come to believe in the Bible as reliable, as an account of history and reality. Although not held by, as proof by all, we certainly believe it is a, a depiction of truth and what the Bible says is true. Yes, this requires a measure of faith, but keep in mind, every worldview requires a measure of faith. However, I want you to understand one thing, that Christianity is not a blind faith. Some are. Some require you to believe against information, against evidence, against reason, but no, not the truths of Christ. When closely examined, biblical Christianity comes with a massive amount of reason and evidence. Now, to be sure, this evidence doesn't build the faith. I don't want you thinking that. God builds faith. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they would not see the light of the glory of the gospel and believe, says 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And the only thing that can undo that is God opening a person's eyes. He has to lift the blindfold that they can see the gospel and believe. So God, God is the one who builds faith. But studying evidences for the faith strengthens faith. It's like adding rebar to concrete. It reinforces the faith. It's encouraging to know that what you believe makes sense and it fits the world as we know it. In addition, the reasonableness of the faith can be instrumental in removing intellectual roadblocks in the minds of those who don't believe. Some might have the impression that the Christian faith is unreasonable, and if you can show them otherwise, God can use that to clear the path in their mind towards believing, towards the faith. A perfect place to do this is with the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is such an unbelievable belief. It goes against seemingly the, the one fact everybody knows. that When you die, you stay dead. Whatever happens next, at the, one, at the very least, you don't come back. Death and taxes, the, the two immutable laws of our, of our lives. And over the past 200 years, an anti-supernatural bias has pervaded the, the Western world. So to believe in resurrection, it's even harder now these days. But if you take the time to study what we do know, 
you will find that the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is remarkably well attested. It's supported by the facts of history, and it goes with reason, not against. Now, you might say, I've never seen a resurrection, and that's true, but you have seen a Christian, right? You have seen a New Testament. Where did those come from? How did Christianity begin from nothing and then spread and take over the entire world and change the entire world forever? You have seen that. That's a fact of history. So you have to account for that. And when you look at all the facts, the only explanation that fits is that it it really happened. Jesus rose from the dead. You know, the Bible itself is actually concerned with giving you such evidences for the resurrection. This is not an area where God tells us to just shut up and believe. But he himself, in the Bible, left behind proofs to bolster our faith, to encourage and strengthen our faith. For example, Paul testified that God, quote, furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Talking about Jesus, Acts 17.31. The word for proof there, it's the same word for faith. God was establishing the basis of the faith through the resurrection. Also, Acts 1.3, where Luke says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Obviously obviously talking about Jesus. Tecmarion, the word, refers to a decisive proof, something that gives evidence and removes doubt. So Jesus himself, it says, offered evidence. He gave proof that he had risen from the dead. What was the nature of these convincing proofs that Jesus gave? Well, what would it take for you to believe that your lost loved one had come back and, and risen? You'd have to see them, right? You'd definitely have to see them, probably talk to them. You might even want to interview them, touch them, and so forth. And that is precisely what Jesus did. The New Testament records a minimum of 10 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus with his disciples. And he didn't just appear like a ghost, but he walked with them. He talked with them. Three times he ate with them. He performed a miracle before them. And then he let them touch his scars. These were all proofs Jesus gave to show that he really rose from the dead. He wanted them to see and believe because the resurrection is the basis, the foundation for the faith. Speaking of resurrection being fundamental to the faith, that's what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15, a famous chapter on resurrection. He says, speaking of the gospel, which saves, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he lays it out, one, two, three. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and then raised. But Paul, if you keep reading, he doesn't just state the fact, and that's what he does in 3 and 4. He states the fact, but then after that, he he backs it up. He builds on it. He says this, after Jesus rose, verse 5, And then he appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And notice a few things here. 
First, Paul relates how Jesus appeared to more than 500 of his disciples at one time. That would have been in Galilee. But why does Paul even say that? Well, it's because if any of these Corinthian believers don't believe the resurrection or have doubts about the resurrection, all they have to do is merely find one of the remaining 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses, and just ask them. And they'll tell them. And if this were some story that Paul was making up, the last thing you want is people looking into your backstory. But Paul invites that. He invites them to basically ask one of these 500 people. Furthermore, consider, why does Paul spend four verses telling us to whom Jesus appeared? And why did Jesus even appear to all those people after his resurrection? He didn't really have to appear to anybody. He could have died, been buried, raised, ascended straight to heaven, and it wouldn't affect the gospel plan at all. So why even appear for 40 days? Well, one big answer is evidence. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he rose. He wanted to give them evidence of his resurrection, and he wanted them to know specifically this was not just some spiritual resurrection. This was a physical, bodily resurrection. That's why he ate with them. That's why he let them touch him. He was not just an apparition or a ghost. He was physically alive from the dead. That's the testimony of scripture, and it really holds up. Now, to this, might some might say, but I don't even believe the Bible is the word of God. But even still, even from the perspective of a critic or a skeptic, the resurrection of Jesus is the only explanation that accounts for all the facts of history. There's great answers of Genesis, answers in Genesis article written by Tim Chaffee where he cites research by a guy named Dr. Gary Habermas. Since 1975, Habermas has cataloged over 3,400 academic works on Jesus, on the fate of Jesus. He surveyed what scholars believed happened, whether they were believers or not. In fact, he mostly drew from skeptics, critics, people who didn't believe in the resurrection, but he wanted to see what they did believe in as historical fact. And he found that a majority of scholars accepted as fact, these facts of history, that Jesus was real, that he died by crucifixion, that his tomb was empty, that his disciples believed he rose and appeared to them, and that one-time enemies like James and Paul were radically transformed and converted. By a majority of scholars, these facts are not contested. From the historical record of the New Testament, plus outside historical documents, these basic facts can be established pretty easily. Jesus was a real person. He did die by crucifixion. That's mentioned even by Josephus. The tomb was empty. Even non-biblical writings attest to that fact. The disciples at least believed he rose and appeared to them. Then you have people like James, the brother of Jesus, and Saul, who used to be enemies, radically transformed and become the greatest supporters. As a result, the church spread, and in a matter of a few hundred years, took over the Roman Empire, literally took over the empire. These are basic facts of history that even non-believing critics assent to. There's still enough outside sources to make these plain facts of history to them. So the question then becomes, what is the explanation for these facts of history? The explanation of the Bible is very clear. It's very simple. 
Jesus truly rose from the dead. And he really did appear to them, and it changed them and transformed them and started the church and changed the world. Of course, some believers, they, they don't want to believe that. They, they can't believe that. They have to believe something else, so they must come up with some other explanation to account for the world we know today, the facts of history, no matter how silly and absurd these theories seem. But I want to know, have you studied this yourself? I find that in general, a lot of people, they know what they believe, but they have no idea why they believe it. For example, if you were to to interview the the random person who believes in the Big Bang Theory, he would probably have no idea about any of the scientific evidence supporting or arguing against the Big Bang Theory. Most people have a surprising ignorance concerning their own beliefs. You find the same ignorance among a lot of people who do not believe in the resurrection and a similar ignorance among many who do believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And what about you? It's something you should know, you should study. As a believer, you should know what you believe and why you believe it. Especially coming to the resurrection because, like we've said before, it's the linchpin to the entire Christian faith. If that falls, if, if you let enemies destroy and poke holes in the resurrection, you have no defense, your faith falls. Again, let me be clear. Such evidences, they're not the foundation of the faith. God working to open the eyes to the gospel is the only thing that can transform a person. But like I said before, God can use reason and evidence to till the soil of the hardened heart of an unbeliever. And then for believers, for those who already believe, evidences provide some of the, the greatest encouragement to your faith. It's encouraging to know that even though you believe something, that is so unbelievable that Jesus rose from the dead, you have good reason to do so. You don't have to be like the ostrich with with your head in the sand, just hoping and pretending the critics just go away. You can live with your head held high, confident that what you believe is the truth and it withstands all assaults to the contrary. So this morning, I want to strengthen your faith. And I want to do so by taking you through a study on the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. Just last week, we finished Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, the account of the resurrection in Mark's gospel. And that means our time in Mark's gospel is coming to an end pretty soon here. But before we're done and before we move on, I wanted to spend some more time studying the resurrection itself. I want you to be better equipped in the knowledge of this truth. And so what we're going to do today and next week, a two-parter, is study the reality of Christ's resurrection for ourselves. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? In this study, I want us to first establish three basic facts that are accepted even by most critical scholars. Number one, that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Number two, that the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. And number three, critics like James and Paul were transformed. These will be our baseline facts, accepted even by those who, who don't believe in the resurrection. Then, I want us to look at the theories critics give to try and make sense of these facts of history. 
But you will quickly see how these theories fall apart and cannot account for what we know to be true, like houses built on sand. All other explanations, they can't make sense of the facts of history, and they fall flat on their faces. We'll find then that the only explanation that fits the facts of Scripture is that Jesus truly rose from the dead. And in this, I trust your faith will be built up and encouraged and strengthened. So that's our goal. It's a long introduction, but we're ready to get into it now. It'll take us two weeks to accomplish. And the rest of our time today, I want us to spend fully exploring the first of these three facts and accounting for it. It may be the most significant that the tomb of Jesus was empty. So we'll begin with this for our time, the rest of our time today. Number one, the tomb of Jesus was empty. This is the first fact we need to establish. Jesus was crucified, entombed on Friday afternoon, but come Sunday morning, that tomb was empty. It's something we've already studied quite a bit from Mark's gospel. We don't need to rehash that here. Christ's death on the cross was made sure by that Roman centurion. His body was taken down by Joseph of Arimathea. And then along with Nicodemus, he was encased in a linen wrapping with a hundred pounds of spices. The body of Jesus was, was then sealed in a tomb hewn out of solid rock nearby. His body was laid in the tomb. He laid there all Sabbath and come Sunday morning, it was gone. The tomb was empty. Four different sources, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record how a group of women came to the tomb first thing Sunday morning to find the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. And when these women, notably Mary Magdalene, ran and told the disciples, then Peter and John themselves ran to the tomb, looked inside, and found it was indeed empty, save for the burial cloth left behind. So first off, the fact that the tomb was empty come Sunday morning is attested to by all four biblical witnesses. What makes this fact even stronger is that the enemies of Jesus likewise conceded that the tomb was empty. Speaking of the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb who saw the angel come and roll the stone away, Matthew says this. This is Matthew 28, 11 through 15. It says, Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. Now, what's really notable here is that the Sanhedrin, the same people who killed Jesus, affirmed that the tomb was empty. In this story, they're affirming the tomb is empty. The enemies of Jesus, they wanted nothing more than to stop any notion of resurrection. And look, that would have been very easy to do if the tomb was full. All they had to do was march over to the tomb of Jesus, grab the body, and it's over. Christianity would be dead on arrival. But they didn't do that. Why not? Because they knew the tomb was empty and the body of Jesus was missing. The soldiers guarding the tomb told them that much. 
The soldiers told them what they saw. Still, the Sanhedrin created this story. The disciples nevertheless came by night and stole away the body of Jesus. In this story, they admit the body is gone, the tomb is empty. But it quickly becomes evident they don't even believe their own story. Think about this one. If this is their story, if this is true, why didn't the Sanhedrin prosecute the disciples? Arrest them, put them on trial? Ever think about that? And the disciples, they should have been executed for this crime. The tomb of Jesus, as you remember, was secured with a Roman seal. To sneak past the guard and break that Roman seal came with the penalty of death. So why didn't the Sanhedrin prosecute the disciples? Surely, one of the eleven would have given up the body of Jesus under threat of death, right? Why didn't they pursue the disciples? Also, why not charge the Roman guard with dereliction of duty? When the Roman military was largely based off of fear, failure to guard this tomb would have meant death for them as well. So, why didn't the Sanhedrin also pursue and prosecute the Roman guard? They failed to guard the temple. They let the disciples steal the body. This creating this whole mess, this rumor of resurrection. Why didn't they pursue the disciples and the soldiers? You see, from so many angles, the lies of the disciples could have been disproven. But they didn't do this. Why not? Why this cover-up? Well, the simple fact is the Sanhedrin, they didn't really doubt the story that the, that the soldiers gave to them. They didn't doubt that an angel descended from heaven, rolled away the stone, showed the tomb that was empty. They just didn't want that story to spread. And if, the prosec- if they prosecuted the disciples or the soldiers, the soldiers would be forced to testify. And to them, that was a worst-case scenario. That would mean these Roman soldiers who have no vested interest in Jesus would be testifying of what they saw and that story would only grow that the tomb really was empty because he had raised. So their only option is this cover-up and just forget the whole thing happened. Now you might say, well, this story, though, it's only found in Matthew. And by no means do I undercut the biblical witness. We believe in scripture and that's all we would need. But... In reality, this story was maintained by the Jews for some time, like it said, and it shows up in other historical works from the early days. For example, Dialogue with Trypho, a work from the second century, century rather, it contains a debate between a Jew and a Christian, and the Jew maintains that the tomb was empty because the disciples stole the body. You also have Toledoth Yeshu, a document from the fifth century, it continues to maintain among the Jews that the tomb was empty because the body was stolen by the disciples. That same story shows up. But notice, they're admitting to one fact, the tomb was empty. That's all we're trying to establish right now. The tomb was empty. Let me throw in one more ancient source for you. It was found in the 1800s. It's a marble tablet from Nazareth, written in Greek. It's known as a Nazareth inscription. It contains an edict from Emperor Claudius. He's passing a new law. It's dated to AD 41. What's the new law? It's a law concerning graves and tombs that they remain undisturbed forever. He states in the law, if anyone in any manner takes or moves a body from a tomb or moves the sepulcher ceiling stone, he calls it, the penalty is death. Again, that's from AD 41. And that you might think, okay, so what? It doesn't mention Jesus. It doesn't mention resurrection. 
That's true. But just, just think about that. That hugely verifies the authenticity, the historicity of Matthew's account. This law was not about grave robbing. Grave robbing was a problem back then. But notice that law said nothing about the possessions in the tomb, which is what grave robbers were after. They didn't care about the body. This law was only about stealing the body and moving the stone in front. That's it. And by the way, those stones, those ceiling stones, that was only really used in the land of Palestine. So this law concerns the land of Palestine. It makes you wonder, why did the emperor make this law? Well, something must have happened concerning stealing bodies and moving stones from tombs in the Palestinian region. And something big must have happened, something significant, because it made its way to the emperor's desk, and he felt it was significant enough to pass a law on it. And it's true, this tablet does not outright prove the resurrection, but it confirms the historicity of Matthew's account. Here we have a law within 10 years of Christ's death, this empire-wide concern about breaking into sealed tombs and stealing bodies. Where'd that come from? Well, it just so happens to be the same story the Jews were spreading in Christ's day. So like I said, the testimony of the empty tomb comes from many ancient sources. And when you look at the non-biblical sources, in a way, they're extremely significant because they come from opponents to Christianity. Look, it's one thing for Christians to claim the tomb was empty. Of course they're going to say that. But when you have non-Christians, when you have opponents who likewise assent, yeah, the tomb was empty, that says a lot when it's coming from the other side. The last thing these enemies want to do is give any ground to the Christian movement. But they can't help but testify that the tomb was empty. When you have testimony from what's called hostile witnesses, it speaks volumes to the authenticity of that record. Even the early enemies of Christianity understood the tomb was empty. Now, all this being said, you still might say, okay, so what? Sure, the tomb is empty. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove the resurrection. Surely, a full tomb would disprove the resurrection, but an empty tomb does not prove the resurrection. That is true. That is true. But now we must ask the next, the next question. How do you account for the fact of the empty tomb? How do you explain that the tomb was empty? Remember, our goal for this morning is to explore and account for these facts of history. We're dealing with, number one, the tomb was empty. The fact is clear. Even most critical scholars assent to that fact that, yes, the tomb of Jesus was empty. But how do you account for that? Well, critics back then and today have come up with numerous explanations and theories to account for the empty tomb. And so let's transition now. Let's start to look at some of their theories, see if they hold any water. Let's start with the most ancient and the most popular theory, that the disciples stole the body. That's what the Jews said, right? We just read that, that disciples stole the body. With this one, though, when you start to look at the details, it falls so hard on its face. Start by thinking, what were the disciples up against? First, there's the tomb itself carved out of solid rock, which means there's only one way in and out, the little entrance. That entrance, though, was sealed by this massive stone. We learned last time, Mark 16, verse 4, the stone was extremely large, it says. 
This cylindrical stone would have been four to six feet in diameter, one foot thick, weighing one to two tons. And to move it out of place, up a little incline against gravity would have been a serious task for several strong men. Now, among the 11 disciples, they could have moved the stone. That is, if it weren't for the Roman guard. The Jews feared the disciples would steal the body of Jesus. And so you remember, they took their concerns to Pilate. And they said to him, or Pilate said to them, Matthew 27, verse 65, he said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. The implication here is that Pilate gave them a Roman guard to make the, guard, make the tomb as secure as possible. How many soldiers were there? We don't know for sure. Certainly, there were at least four, because later on we find that some of them come back, plural, some of them do not, plural. So we're at least four. Later in Acts chapter 12, verse 4, Herod assigns 16 soldiers to guard one man in prison, Peter. Given that Jesus is a much bigger target, there's a threat from 11 disciples and many other disciples that crowded Passover weekend, it's likely Pilate gave them a whole bunch of soldiers. Either way, they show up at the tomb, they set up a 24-7 guard. They also set the Roman seal on the stone. This is a marker symbolizing the power and authority of Rome. The seal would have been attached to the stone such that if the stone was moved, it would have broken the seal, indicating somebody moved the stone. It's like the seal on a plastic water bottle. When you, when you break it, it's open. And if you see it open, you know someone has opened the bottle. The only difference, though, is in the first century, if you broke the Roman seal, the penalty was death. These Roman soldiers would have likewise taken their job very seriously because they, too, had the prospect of death hung over them if they failed to guard that tomb. The Roman army operated off of fear. If you remember, Acts 16, Paul was in prison, but God sent an earthquake and all the doors opened, all their chains fell off. Do you remember that? Remember when that happened, what the jailer was going to do? Acts 16.27 says, When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. If they escaped and he failed, he's dead anyway. So he was going to kill himself because the penalty for failure was death. The same would have been true for the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb of Jesus. If they didn't guard and defend the tomb... They would have been executed for their failure. And so there's no way they're going to just fall asleep and let someone walk in and steal the body. But just just put it all together. This is what the disciples were up against. Somehow, they had to keep watch on the guards, just hoping they would all fall asleep at the same time. And when that happened, despite the, the fact they would face their own death, once the soldiers were all snoozing, they had to sneak past them without waking any of them up, and then they had to roll away this massive stone, which would have required a ton of effort, and whisk away the body of Jesus without making a sound. But uh, by the way, it appears they weren't in much of a rush because they took the time to unwrap the body of Jesus and leave behind a linen, la- linen wrappings perfectly in place. It, it sounds like a Mission Impossible story. What's ironic here is later, you know, this is the story the Sanhedrin endorsed. They paid the soldiers to tell. That while they were sleeping, 
the disciples came and stole away the body, right? Do you see the glaring inconsistency in their own story? If the soldiers were sleeping, how did they know it was the disciples that stole the body? How do they know anybody stole the body? They were sleeping. You don't see things when you're asleep. So you see, the idea that the disciples stole the body, it doesn't fit any of the facts that we know. Add to this the mental state of the disciples, and it just falls apart. Remember in John 20, all of them went into hiding after Jesus was arrested. They were cowards running for their lives. So to think these cowards would risk assaulting a Roman guard and breaking a Roman seal for a dead Messiah is just crazy. And if this really happened, all the Roman soldiers had to do is just testify that the disciples stole the body and they'd all be executed. We will revisit this stolen body theory later, but as a final nail in the coffin, if the disciples really stole Christ's body, just think, they would have final proof that Jesus was a liar. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed he would rise from the dead. But if they stole his body and now they're in the upper room, they're all gathered around his lifeless corpse, they would have final proof he was a liar. He's just another phony, fraud Messiah. So what do you think they would do next? Do you think that would really inspire them to give over their entire lives for this man to preach him for nothing? Realize, after the resurrection, what happened? All the disciples, they did. They gave their entire lives over to preaching Jesus, including his resurrection. And what did they gain for this? They gained nothing. There's no money in this, no power, no prestige, no fame, no fortune. All they gained for this was suffering, persecution, and all of them death. A few people might maintain a lie for gain, but all these people creating this lie for nothing, it doesn't add up. No part of the theory that the disciples stole the body of Jesus adds up. It doesn't account for any of the facts. So this is the first theory, the oldest theory that skeptics have created to try and explain away the resurrection, but it completely falls apart. It makes no sense, which is why they've come up with other theories. They, they cannibalize themselves because they know none of these theories actually work. They have to keep coming up with something new. So let me expose you just real quick to a few others so you're aware. Maybe you've heard of another one. It's called the wrong tomb theory. Hey, maybe the women and the disciples, they just showed up to the wrong tomb. There's another empty tomb, and they mistook it to be that Jesus rose, and, and there you have it. This is a, a real theory someone has suggested in, in history, and it's, it's rather laughable, though. It's so easy to cast aside, and we'll do so here. First off, as Matthew 27 tells us, Mary Magdalene, she was watching the tomb while Jesus was put inside, so she knew which was the right tomb for sure. Surely also the Jewish authorities and the Roman guards, they were going to show up at the right tomb. They were not going to guard the wrong tomb. They knew which tomb to guard. Furthermore, this theory totally discards the testimony of the angel who told the women, you've come to the right tomb, it's just Jesus isn't here. But above all, just think, if the disciples really stumbled upon the wrong tomb and mistook it to believe, oh, Christ is risen, so they go and they start preaching Christ is risen from the dead, all the Jews had to do was go to the real tomb of Jesus, open it, get his body, 
parade it through the streets, end of story. They could have killed Christianity before it was born. But as we established, they knew the body wasn't there. And as you can see, though, this theory makes the least sense by far. Now, there's one final theory just to let you know about. It's known as the swoon theory from the 1800s. Have you heard of this before? The swoon theory. Remember, we're talking about how these people explain the fact of the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. Why? Well, some theorize the tomb was empty because Jesus, he never really died. This is known as the swoon theory because Jesus didn't die. He merely swooned or appeared to be dead, but he was still breathing. Then he revived in the cool air of the tomb and managed to escape. This is another pretty laughable theory. It fails, it fails to account for all of the facts. It fails to account for any of the facts. For instance, you remember the Roman centurion we looked at in Mark's gospel? This guy was an expert in death. Today, we don't see that many dead bodies. But this Roman centurion back then, how many dead bodies did he see a month? Dozens? He knew death when he saw it. He had a front row seat to the crucifixion, and he knew when Jesus died. He later testifies to Pilate that he was truly dead. And as a final confirmation, when they thrust the spear in his side, puncturing his lung and his heart, he was dead. There is no two ways about it. There's a reason this theory wasn't suggested until the 1800s. Because everybody in the ancient world knew immediately that there was no surviving what Jesus went through. Remember, before the cross, Jesus was beaten severely three times. Then he was brutally scourged with that whip. That whipping was enough to kill some men. Some people died just from the scourging. So he's dealing with fatigue and blood loss. He's so weak he can't even carry his own crossbeam. He then has railroad spikes driven through his hands and feet. By the time the spear enters his side, it's all over. But then to think he he somehow survived for a few more days is ridiculous. To think that Joseph, Joseph and Nicodemus couldn't tell that he was still breathing is ridiculous. Don't forget, they wrapped his whole body, including his face, with this linen wrapping and 100 pounds of oils and spices. If Jesus was still living, they would have killed him because he would have suffocated. He would have suffocated to death. Yet some still contend that Jesus magically lived. He woke up in the cool air of the tomb, somehow unwrapped himself. He decided to take the time and and nicely and neatly fold his linen wrappings, put them back perfectly in place, of course. Then he somehow managed to move the, the stone from the inside. Granted, he couldn't walk because he had nails through his feet. Even still, somehow moving the tombstone, He snuck past the guards. Then he found his disciples. He appeared before his disciples, this broken, bloodied, pathetic man, barely clinging to life. And he said to them, I am risen. And this resurrection appearance then inspired the disciples. Jesus really did rise from the dead, which they didn't even see him die. And so they started the church. Sound about right? Yeah, I don't think so. To the contrary, every record of Jesus appearing to his disciples was in glory and power and majesty because he was not resuscitated. He was resurrected. The swoon theory is so ridiculous, it's almost not worth mentioning. It ignores essentially every detail given in the resurrection accounts. 
And such a theory itself cannot be accounted for. It's not based on a shred of evidence. It's just another desperate attempt, grasping at straws by those who can accept a resurrection. They have to find some way to explain an empty tomb. Can't be a resurrection, though, because that would mean God is real and Jesus is Lord. All of these theories, the stolen body, the wrong tomb, the swooning theory, they try and explain the empty tomb. But not only do they fail to logically explain the empty tomb, none of them can account for the other facts of history that, in addition to the empty tomb, the disciples really believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. And you have critics and enemies like James and Paul becoming radically transformed and believing. These facts of history must also be explained and accounted for. We're saving these for next week. But in them we will find only further confirmation that the biblical biblical explanation is the only one that accounts for all the facts, that Jesus truly rose from the dead. For today, though, we have seen that the tomb of Jesus was empty. This is fact number one. And it's true, the empty tomb by itself does not prove the resurrection. No, but it is required. And this empty tomb must be accounted for. The disciples stealing the body. The women showing up at the wrong tomb. Jesus merely swooning. They all fall short. None of them make any sense. None of them are based off any evidence. None of them them are fit, the, the, the details that we know. You talk about living by faith. If you try and explain the empty tomb by one of those theories, you are living by a blind faith. A faith against reason and evidence because there is no proof for any of those things. Rather, already the only explanation that fits the one given in Scripture is that Jesus rose from the dead. Like the angel said to the women when they first showed up to the right tomb, he said to them, He is not here. He is risen. God himself purposely left behind that empty tomb as the first witness to the resurrection. As we point out last week, that stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let other people in that they could see he's not there. The tomb is empty. His body was gone, but it was not gone. It was transformed. It was raised to new life. And that's the hope and the foundation of the gospel that we too will one day be raised to that same resurrected life in Christ, in him. Those of you here today, I trust most, if not all of you, came already believing this, that the tomb was empty because he rose But I pray that this study has strengthened and encouraged your faith to know you you have good reason to believe the unbelievable and this testimony of scripture. His tomb was empty. Why was it empty? How do you account for the empty tomb? Because he rose. We strengthen that belief. For any here who might not believe, I want to warn you against suppressing the truth. When people reject Christ, it's not an intellectual issue. That's a paltry excuse. There are plenty of reasons to believe if you really study. Rather, people reject because they don't want to submit their will to their creator. They don't want to give up control of their lives. They don't want to lose their precious sins. So they would rather deny what they know to be true in their hearts and keep their sin. Isn't this what Romans 1 confirms? Romans 1 verse 18 says, you remember, for the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what, that's what they do. They suppress what we used to do. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And it goes on, verse 19. It says, of them that which is known about God is evident within them. Verse 20, God's existence is clearly seen in nature. So they're without excuse. Verse 21, they know God. They just don't honor God. Their foolish hearts being darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of man. Same thing happens today. It still happens just that way. And it happens with the resurrection. Since Christ's own day, starting with those leading Jews, people have been suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. They just can't believe. They don't want to believe in the resurrection because then it would mean the end of their world. It would mean the Bible is true. God is real. Christ is Lord. And they have to change their ways. They don't want to change their ways. But don't miss the warning in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against those who persist in that hardened unbelief and suppressing the truth. In reality, if this is you, you're already under wrath. And the only hope is the the gospel, the good news of Christ, that he came and died and was buried and raised for you to pay for your sins and offer you that same new life. Yes, it's true. Believing in him means the end of your world. But it means the beginning of a new life, new life in him. True, it means you have to change your ways, but that's the best thing that could happen to you. It means freedom from the power and the enslaving presence of sin. Everybody lives by faith. Y'all believe something, but don't resist the truth. See for yourself. The Lord wants you to see. He left behind the biblical witness recorded in scripture for you to see. Behold his hands, his feet, his side. See the empty tomb. There's no other explanation. Submit yourself to him and believe. You don't have to apologize for your faith. All live by it. But ours is a faith built on the solid rock of God's word. Ours is a faith supported by history and the world as we know it. And ours is a faith that comes with the greatest hope, the hope of resurrection. So I invite you to come to this faith today and for the rest be strengthened in this faith today. Until next time, let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you so much for leaving behind the testimony of your word. Your word is truth. It is all we need. And through it, you you speak the words of life to our heart. You bring us to life, causing us to know your son, Jesus Christ, lifting the veil, blinding us that we might see the truth as it is. We thank you for this, Lord. You did not have to do this, leaving behind your witnesses, only a, a measure of your grace and mercy. But strengthen our faith. Our faith rests on Christ alone, through the word alone. We don't need history or anything else, Lord. We have your word and it is sufficient. But Lord, you've left behind so many witnesses that can strengthen and, and build up and encourage our faith. That we are not fools. Though the cross is foolishness to the world, ours is not a blind faith. We thank you for that. We stand firm in that. 
build us up in the truth. We want to know more. You love knowledge. You don't call us to believe against knowledge, Lord. You are a lover of knowledge, a philosopher, the lover of all things true. And may that be us as well. We take delight in the scriptures knowing that they show us an account of life as it is. And that includes our risen Lord. He came, he died, he was buried, and then he raised. Lord, that tomb was empty because Christ raised from the dead. And he did so to, to, to show that final victory over sin, our sin and our death. In him, we have life, so we offer up our lives to him. Lord, if there are any here who do not know you or are resisting the truth, soften their hearts. May you invade their lives and lift that blindfold from them. They can see and believe. It's the only truth. It's the only explanation that makes sense. Far from being our heads in the sand like others say of us, Lord, ours is the only truth that accounts with reason. May they see, may they believe. May they find the life that Jesus died to give them. And for us, may we enjoy that life and and grow in it. It It's in Christ's name we pray this morning. Amen.